<laughs> this episode of The Minimalist is brought to you by nobody. Because... You're damn right they do. Oh, this is so good. So we're the minimalists. We are live in Dallas, Texas. Make some noise, Dallas. This is a special episode of the Minimalist Podcast, not only because it's live, because we have a special guest here. Ian Cron is our guest. He has a wonderful podcast. It is called Typology. He has a book called The Road Back to You, which Ryan and I both really enjoyed. We want to talk about that a bit. And a brand new book you can pre-order right now. It is called The Story of You. Ian, thank you so much for being here, brother. Oh, man, it's my pleasure. Thank you. I got, I got to tell you something. So we, did, we, we hung out at your house last time we were in Nashville. And um, we hopped on your podcast. And Ryan and I were only sort of tangentially familiar with you and your work, and even with the Enneagram. Any Enneagram fans in here tonight? All right. So I guess I'm seeing that maybe a third of the room's familiar. That means two-thirds of the room are unfamiliar. Can we kind of walk through maybe the different types of personality? What is the Enneagram exactly? And then how does it apply to the folks here tonight? Yeah, well, uh, so the Enneagram is this uh, ancient personality typology, typing system, that teaches there are nine basic personality styles in the world, one of which we gravitate toward and adopt in childhood as a way to cope, to feel safe, and to navigate the new world of relationships. And really importantly is that each of these styles has an unconscious motivation that powerfully influences how that type habitually and predictably acts, thinks, and feels from moment to moment on a daily basis. So that's what the Enneagram is. Now, when we went to do your podcast, um, I've never seen Ryan, I mean, people often say like, we're the head, the head and the heart of the minimalists, right? And I've never seen someone get Ryan into his heart so quickly. Within 30 seconds, I think you had him crying on your podcast. <laughs> and you did it with ease. So I was hoping, if you would, can you make him cry right now? Please don't, Ian. <laughs> so um, we, talk, we talked about personality types. And... Um, I'm a three, Ryan's a seven, you're a four, but what do these personality types mean? And I'm gonna switch my mic out here. But go ahead and let me know what those personality types mean. All right, so, I mean, I'll just give you a, maybe a, a 100,000 foot super fast flyby because, you know, obviously I could write 100, 200, 300 pages. <laughs> yeah, you could write a book on it, you literally did, yeah. <laughs> my, my sound just became uh -huh. minimal. Uh -huh. Oh, there it is. <laughs> All right, so yeah, I could write hundreds of pages on each of these types, but really, really fast. Here we go. Ones are called the improvers. They used to be called the perfectionists until I had so many of them get in my face and say, why do you have such a pejorative term for our type and no other? Yes. Right? So I changed My wife's it. a perfectionist, by the way. Is she? Yes. All right, so I, I just changed the name to improver, right? And so for every person who has thanked me, if I got a nickel, I'd be Jeff Bezos. So... <laughs> Um, so they're, they're called the perfect. The unconscious motivation of the one is this need to perfect themselves, others, and the world. So when a one gets up in the morning, they just see a planet that is rife with disorder, 
with um, mistakes. And they feel this bounden duty to correct them, right? Now, now, I sense there is a, there's quite a bit of self-righteousness within the one. Are you speaking from personal experience? <laughs> and is your marriage about to end on stage? <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I, I'll tell you that my, my, my marriage has never been stronger, but I think part of it has to do with because we, we've realized things about our personality. And one of the things you talk about in, in your last book is the type at their best. Yes. So what is a one at their best? Oh, man. Um, responsible, reliable, detail-oriented. And here's a great, a great phrase for them. Morally heroic. Mm. Right? I mean, you think about Gandhi, uh, Nelson Mandela, right? Uh, these great figures who saw a world that systemically was broken, mistakes in the system, and felt this compelling need to fix it, right? So at their, in their highest expression of themselves, when they are most self-aware, ones are fantastic human beings. Each type is amazing when, and beautiful, right? when they're operating in that higher sphere of self-awareness. Now, that spectrum obviously runs all over the place. And frankly, during the course of a day, we're all moving around on it, right? From doing great, self-aware, not doing great, acting like a nutcase, you know, and all, everything in between. And so when they're not doing great, yes, they, they can begin to think that their way is the only way of doing something, and therefore they feel justified in judging or criticizing others for not doing things their way. So for example, if you're uncertain if someone is a one, do the dishwasher test. Which is what? They know. Yeah, so you, you load a dishwasher, and then you step back, and if someone comes into the kitchen, or maybe they were watching you do it, clucking in the background. And if they come over and they open the dishwasher and they pull out a, a drawer and they go, why can't anybody do this right, you know? And so, so that's sort of the litmus test for ones, right? You might have a one on your hand there, right? Yeah, I feel, I feel, I feel pulled in that direction quite often myself. I mean, it's a fair question, though. Why can't anybody do anything right? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> because they can't. So you're a three on the Enneagram, so right. we'll pound you in a moment. But <laughs> this is why unconscious motivations are so important. A one would do it because they just see this world that's broken, right? And so they feel like it's up to them to fix it, or you, which doesn't always go over, right? And what I'm describing right there is just not a very healthy, not a very self-aware one. Remember, I want to just make it clear, when they're self-aware, God, they're beautiful, right? They're operating beautifully. But, you know, the less they know about themselves and the less they know that there's a shadow aspect to their type, they have to monitor and regulate correctly, right? Nah, it's not so great, right? Now, a three might want to do the same thing, but for a very different unconscious motivation. Yeah, 
It's see? even more pernicious. Yes. <laughs> it's darker. Yes, it is. All right, so moving on to twos, right? They're called the, uh, the helpers, sometimes the givers. Um, these are people who really, to put it in the simplest terms, they just really want to be liked. And, you know, all of us want to be liked, right? So I'm not, you know, that, that goes across all nine personality styles. But they really want to be liked, right? And when they're healthy, they're supportive, they're warm, they're kind, they're, they create this, what I call a circle of concern, you know, like that you just feel safe moving into the circle and you can share your story with them and they're very empathic, right? Fanta Mr. Rogers would be sort of an iconic two, right? Um, I have a friend of mine who's a, a two on the Enneagram. We used to travel together doing uh, workshops and uh, she is a hardcore two. Right? Hardcore. And we'd be sitting in a gate, and I swear I watched this happen once. Someone just sat down next to her, and they, they must have picked up on the force field. You know what I'm saying? And they went, they're sitting there like this, and she, this person next to her goes, I'm getting a divorce. <laughs> <laughs> and she looked over and went like, oh. And it's just like they, they were just picking up on this, this caring, supportive, warm sort of thing that they have, you know, they're just, people feel very safe with them. Now, when they're not very self-aware, um, they begin to assume that they know what you need better than you do. Mm? And they begin to give and help others in a very strategic and calculated way in order, with the, sort of the quid pro quo assumption that if I meet your needs and take care of you, you will take care of me without my having to come out directly and ask for it. So, so there's an expectation there that goes unsaid. Yes. And man, does that lead, or can it lead to yeah. some misery? Oh, whenever someone's down here in the sort of the lower range of their type, they are banging guardrail to guardrail through other people's lives. Wow. Right? And so, you know, you've all been love-bombed by somebody. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, like, who's just trying to meet your needs, and after a while you're like, stop. You must stop. You know, because it feels intrusive after a while, engulfing. You know, it's like, ugh, I can't take anymore. Stop loving me. Yeah. Stop meeting my yeah. needs, you know? I get that from Josh all the time. <laughs> <laughs> my secondary is a, is a two. Oh, <laughs> yeah. all right, yeah. all right. Yeah, uh, you know what's fascinating? I think bo both of us are, are David Foster Wallace fans. Oh, my gosh. But you didn't, you didn't read Infinite Jest, did you? Of course. From beginning to end? Twice. <laughs> I'm a three. Weird flex, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then I listened to the audio book. Can I just tell you now, if you're de dating someone who has tells you that they're reading Infinite Jest, they're either lying mm. because it's about that long. It's uh, right? 1,079 pages. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's weird you know that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> hmm. So, or they're either lying or you need to stop dating them. They are unwell people. Okay? Just... Take my word for it, okay? So he has this uh, great essay called A Supposedly Fun Thing I'll Never Do Again. And um, it's, about, um, it's about a cruise ship and how it's one of the... At first, it seems so pampering, right? But then you realize how infantilizing it is after a while. You, you sort of have this overly solicitous host or group of overly solicitous hosts who are 
attending to your every need. They're bringing you food and adjusting your chair and making your bed four times a day and, and doing all of these things. And it's like you've hired a bunch of twos to intervene in your vacation. Absolutely. I, I remember going on my honeymoon. We went to Bermuda. And after a while, it was like, you know, because people were constantly at this resort. And we were kids. You know, we had never been around this type of treatment before. <laughs> people were like, after a while, I'm like, stop. Stop taking my plates. Stop asking me how I'm doing. Stop. You know, it's like just was on and on and on. Um, but, you know, it's interesting that, that each type also has what we call a fixation. Okay. And that's a, um, a, a would describe sort of the emotional interior atmosphere and it's also this motivation that sort of continues to drive the unhealthy side of their behavior right so for ones it's anger and what they would say that's as it's been described to me by ones is that it's the anger feels like uh, resentment and what the one resents is the fact that others do not seem to be as zealously concerned with fixing the world as much as they are right right they just don't Get it. They don't get it. And that's why they're always working. Because why? They're making up for the slackers. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? They're yes. out. Oh, I mean, they're out there like swiffing the lawn. And, you know, they're just, they, you know, whatever. Right. <laughs> and twos, it's really their fixation is pride. And the reason it's pride is because um, to presume that you know what another needs better than they do. Right. Yes. So the journey for them to health is to move from pride to humility. And humility is to say, I do not have all the time, treasure, talent and energy to meet everybody's needs. And the one's fixation of anger has to move towards serenity, which is maybe best summarized in that Reinhold Niebuhr prayer that I say every day in my 12 step recovery community for people recovering from drug and alcohol addiction. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. You cannot fix the whole dang world, man. To accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And so there's a sense of peace around the one who realizes, I will try my best to improve the world, but to perfect it is a fool's errand. Right? Now, threes. <laughs> what about fours? We'll get to the fours. So threes are called the achievers, sometimes the performers. The unconscious motivation of the three is a need to succeed, to appear successful, and to avoid failure at all costs. <laughs> You're tearing up. Go ahead. <laughs> now listen, when they're healthy, again, awesome, charismatic, uh, productive, uh, visionaries, uh, people who see the goal and, and the fastest path to cross it, right? I mean, amazing. I can't imagine a world without threes, right? When they're not doing great, not so great, right? When they're low on the self-awareness scale, uh, threes can become uh, overly obsessed with success, with acquiring status symbols, with... Uh, I, I had two Lexuses. Yeah. <laughs> and telling people about their status symbols. I didn't... See, I didn't usually tell people. I would just rotate them 
Monday, Tuesday, yes. you know, so forth and yeah. so on. So I was at a dinner party one night, and this may be a little bit subtle, but this guy next to me, and this was actually, I will say that when you meet a 70-year-old three who has not done their inner work, Ooh. it's not good, right? So I'm at the table, we're at a dinner party, and uh, this guy leans over and he goes, you know, back when I was at college in New Haven, <laughs> and I went, you mean Yale? And he's like, mm-hmm. You know, and it's, so it's like subtle. It's like self-marketing, self-promotion is the communication style of the three. And so, but understand this, the three sees a world in which people aren't valued for who they are inside, but for what they do. So understand too that these styles too are born of a, of a fundamental wound that we pick up as little people. And so I don't, I wanna be clear that, that we're not making fun of stereotypes. These are not stereotypes. Hopefully when you learn the Enneagram, you learn, and it just happens as a product of, of, the, of the learning is compassion, empathy, understanding, kindness, because we see that so much of what motivates us in life are these wounds that live beneath the waterline of consciousness and they're motivating us and they're driving us, right? And I just think, and Carl Jung is my hero, I'm a therapist, and so he's sort of my guiding light. You know, the more we can bring above the waterline of consciousness into awareness and see it, own what's beautiful about it and own what's not. The more we can do that, the wiser we can move through the world, right? So when the three gets healthy, they realize, man, you know what? I am not what I do. I am beautiful by virtue of being. And it's terrifying at first. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, and because everything you thought you were, you're not. And so the root of personality is what? Mask, Yeah, right? persona. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so... You realize the mask you were wearing, you didn't even know you were wearing it necessarily. You just summed up three so beautifully because really their, their fixation is deceit. And what they, the thing about it is it's not so much that they're lying to others, though I've met some very unhealthy threes who will embellish or amplify their CV in order to impress other people, right? Or to cut, or to make a deal, right? Um, but it's really that they wear so many masks. They're chameleons when they're not very healthy, right? They can change out masks to uh, project the image that they believe the crowd wants them to be. So there's this kind of quality about them that, you know, it's kind of like work in the room. They're working it, you know, and whoever they're talking to, they can tell intuitively, what do I need to say to this person to win their admiration, right? And so um, the journey for them is to move from deceit where there's so many masks and they don't actually, after a while, know who they are because they've been going through life wearing so many masks, right? And so the journey is to discover their authentic selfhood and to live into authenticity, to move from deceit to authenticity, to being who they truly are. And I know from your story, that's been a, a big part of your of your development as a human being, right? Yeah, and I think you summed it up really well. It just There's a, a particular awakening that happens, mm -hmm. and it's almost like the masks begin to fall off on their yeah. own mm -hmm. um, when a deeper understanding of, oh, crap, I didn't even realize I was wearing 
a mask. And exactly. Who, who am I really? Yes. Who is the person I want to become? How, how am I going to define my own success? What is truly important in my life? Like these other questions start to like shed these layers. In yeah. A way. And a lot of times for threes, it requires a crash. Because in America, who do we idolize? Threes. It's a three country, as you talk about in your yes. book. It is a three country, right? Although increasingly a six country, and we'll talk about that maybe if you remind me when we hit sixes. I think, we've, sure. I think we're segueing away from being a forward-looking country where we can all do better than our parents did and be success. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think we've moved away from that vision, for good or for ill, right? And uh, so I think for, for threes, there, there's this journey, and when they become whole again, when they can own what's best and beautiful about who they are and become their true selves, you know? But it, it does sometimes require a crash. And sometimes it comes later in life because we just keep f putting quarters in their meter, you know? And it's like, I often like to say that, uh, you know, for a three doing their work, it's like an alcoholic living over the bar in America, right? And, and so, you know, when they lose something, when they have a, a, a health crisis or a child who's had significant problems or a business fall apart, and suddenly they feel naked, you know, unmasked, and they realize, I've, I've got to become who I am, not who I want others to believe I am. Right. Right? So let's move to fours. Let's do it. The best number on the Enneagram. Um, <laughs> Jesus, Jesus the Buddha, uh, everyone that was really cool. Uh, Bono, <laughs> etc. All fours. No, uh, I'm a four on the Enneagram. <laughs> Add that to your list. Um, fours are called the individualists. We think there are more sixes on the Enneagram than uh, any other type. We think there are fewer fours on the Enneagram than, in, than any other type in the general population. That's pure speculation. However, fours love that. Okay? I'm unique, yes. just like every other four. That's right. <laughs> So fours, you know, their unconscious motivation is a need to be special and unique to compensate for what they perceive is a missing piece in their essential makeup, right? That there's something fundamentally broken with them. That, that, that other people, that, how do I put this? It's, it's as if everybody else has the missing piece, ex except they don't. And so they see everybody and their fixation, therefore, is envy. Right? They envy other people, but it's not for your stuff. What they envy is your happiness, your way of, your, your ease in the world, right? Um, and so you, you see a disproportionate number of artists represented as fours, and they are, right? Um, you think about people like Amy Winehouse, Bob Dylan, probably, um, Kurt Cobain, Sylvia Plath. Ernest Hemingway. You'll notice that none of these people ended things well. You know what I mean? Like, it's not exactly a rota of the people you'd like to add your name to. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Lying in the bathtub with a bottle of scotch, hating my life. But that's kind of, and I only say that because I've done it. Um, like, um, for the four, you know, we, one of the ways that you can sort of tell you around a four is, there's this sort of, um, it comes off from like secondhand smoke. It's melancholy, right? And Victor Hugo sums that up beautifully. It's the happiness of being sad. And that's, a, that's four, man. Like, I, you should have seen me at 22. If at 22 you, you said to me, 
Um, would you like to go on an all-expense-paid trip to Disney World for a week or to the west coast of Ireland where you could write poetry, walk in the mist, and, you know, read Baudelaire while smoking clove cigarettes and wearing a beret? I totally would have done that and, and thought the first, the, the other group of people were really shallow and out of touch with the suffering in the world. You know what I'm saying? It was, I was into my game, man. And so, but when they're, when they're healthy, fours create art and works of creativity that help people find redemption in suffering. Empathy is our superpower. You know what I mean? Like, if your dog dies, don't call a two. You will be tempted. But they will show up on your door with a puppy. You know what I'm saying? Oh, I presume this is what you need, right? You call a four because we know how to sit Shiva. You know what I'm saying? I can sit, I can be with you while you cry. I can, you know, go through the dog pictures with you and make tea and hang out. Because I'm very comfortable around pain. You know, I'm very comfortable around it. Um, now, Jordan, our filmmaker, who's here tonight, he is a five. Yes, let's move to them. Let's talk about Jordan. Let's bring him up here and make him stand. Jordan, no, come on up. No, 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 no. His family's here. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Come on, Jordan. This is a nightmare for fives, by the way. <laughs> this is the hardest thing in the world. That was cruel and evil. Look, he's not coming. He all just the, quit. Yeah, all of a sudden, he disappears. Jordan quit. Oh, Luckily, he's here. I'm not afraid to stand on a stage. Hi, everybody. I'm Jordan. <laughs> I will not ridicule you. Two of my closest friends are fives. When, when you all are, are healthy and self, they're called the investigators, sometimes the observers, which is often why, by the way, some of our greatest photographers and artists have been fives. Um, one, uh, Ansel Adams, I think, was a, was a five. Um, I think um, that um, Georgia O'Keeffe, who had this ability, right, to translate to the to the page the powers of observation, right? They 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 can they see clearly what the rest of us only feel vaguely. It's a great great gift that you have, right? What's his fixation? <laughs> <laughs> I gotta know, because I don't, or do I? I don't know. Why don't we talk, just for a yeah, moment? Just yeah, for a little just, bit. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right, so here's the thing about fives, right? Um, they are the most analytical number on the Enneagram. They are the most emotionally distant number on the Enneagram. Some, sometimes um, people will feel like they're aloof or loners, right? Um, they are so objective. Um, they make great EMTs. I mean, you want a paramedic who is a five. You, you don't want a four as your paramedic, right? Because I will be in the back seat crying and writing a poem about your death. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I'll be like, elegiac for Josh, you know? And you want a five who's objective, right? Who doesn't get emotionally sucked into the moment. And they're able at that moment to kind of go, oh, you have a screwdriver in your neck. Right? And they're like, well, triage, here's what we have to do. First, second, third, fourth, fifth, right? And then they, so it's a wonderful thing. I mean, we all got a place in the world, right? You want your pharmacist to be a one on the Enneagram. 
your neurologist, a one on the Enneagram. You might want your therapist to be a two, right? You may want the head of, uh, of your operation, right, to be a, a three. Not that you're not the head of the operation. Right. I'm just saying. Yeah. You bring different juice. We'll, well get to you in a let's moment. Let's just say one of us pays more attention to detail than the other. Yes. <laughs> yes, that's true. So the five, right? So the five's need is to know and understand everything. His, his moniker is Jordan No More. <laughs> You're kidding. I swear to you. You can follow him on Instagram. Jordan, K-N-O-W, more. <laughs> <laughs> you cannot make this up. Yeah. Okay, I'm just that telling was, you. That was the revelation when, when we were on your podcast. I was like, oh, you pointed at me. Like, he, he, this guy knows. <laughs> he, he was just like... Like he was like, we're talking, we're going down the list like this, and he's like, and we get to the five, and then he just kind of pointed at me in the room, <laughs> and you're a five, and I was I was stunned. So, but that was the revelation, my my uh, moniker. Yeah, it's great. So, so the five's fixation is greed, and it's avarice. All right, all right. Don't worry, I'm getting to you. Um, so for the five, though, it's that. Um, the avarice takes the form of retentiveness or retention, right? Because the five feels like the whole world is making too many relational demands, right? They feel like they have smaller tanks for particularly relationships, but for too much human interaction will drain the crap out of a five. Like, I bet tonight after this, you will be out here signing books, you will be too, hugging people, passing all manner of plague in every direction, <laughs> and he will be looking at his watch and thinking, when can I get back to the hotel? I need time alone to recharge. And usually it's through aggregating more information, more knowledge. You'll be on the internet. You'll be reading books. How many books do you bring on this tour? One. One. Yeah, but it's it was infinite days. jest. It's three days. <laughs> 1,079 pages. That's right. We'll return to that. Um, so... The journey for you as a five is to move from avarice, which is because you feel like you don't have enough resources to meet the demands of the world. And so all that knowledge gathering is a way of fending off feelings of inadequacy and ineptitude, right? You never want to be caught up short when someone asks you a question. You want to have the answer, right? So it's to move from that to, which is a scarcity mindset, to an abundance mindset, that there, are, there is enough and you are enough. You have enough to meet what the world is asking of you, right? And then also to, you're in what's called the head triad, meaning that you will tend to retreat into the mental cavern as a place to feel safe and, and comfortable, right? But to lower the drawbridge and to come out and not observe life from a distance anymore, but to begin to actually participate in life with others, yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, let's give Jordan a hug. Yeah! I'll give you one of those, buddy. You ready for sixes? Yeah, Podcast John, who I know won't come up here, but he's back there lurking in the shadows. Is he? Yeah, he is a six. Oh, let's... All right, never mind. We won't bring him up. There. Let's talk about him, though. Oh, let's definitely talk about him. So sixes are called the loyalists, sometimes the devil's advocates. These are, are people who see a world that is full of danger. So the, the six is always scanning the horizon, looking for what could go wrong. 
right? And they're always getting ready, right? Their fixation is fear. And so for them, it's like, if I can just get prepared, if I can always be prepared, then I'll be safe in a chaotic and unpredictable world. Mm -hmm. A friend of mine who's a six likes to say, I have pre-traumatic stress disorder. (laughs) (laughs) Can I tell you a story? That is genius. (laughs) So, so we just hired three new people for our team to try to help uh, alleviate some of the burden because Sean's really our, our, our factotum. It just means that he does everything for us. And so we hired three people, and his first question for me was like, wait, you're not replacing me, are you? Yes. <laughs> yes, with a robot. <laughs> exactly. And, and I was like, no, we were trying to, like, Sean's irreplaceable, and we're trying to help him so like we don't like you know burn him out basically, right? But I could see I can see that like it's the the worrying or the fear of what might come. Getting ready, getting just ready. getting ready, man. Yeah. So where, where where do they? What's the journey for the six? Well, the journey for the six is to move away from fear, right? And their unconscious motivation is a, is an is this is a need for safety, security, and support. Right, and so they move from fear to courage, to and I would say this can help them, which is to have sort of this faith, if you will, in a higher power, and that's a word that I hear a lot in my life, that the universe, somewhere in the universe, the universe has their back, in a way. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's like a, a great mystic of the. 12th century once said yeah, this beautiful prayer, all shall be well, all shall be well, all manner of things shall be well. Right? And I think that's where, when a six is healthy, that's where they move to, is this sense that it's going to be alright. It's going to be alright. Right? I think that's where they're really healthy. You want to go to sevens? He's Let's right here. It. Just trying to make me cry again. Alright. That's because you hate bad feelings. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's inter- you talked about how this all comes from uh, trauma, yes. and that's really what like got my, got me into my heart. Is like you really kind of had me just looking at all the different traumas that happened in my life that really got me to the, to be this seven or brought the seven out in me. And one thing really awesome about these different types too is uh, we're all all of them. It just depends on how much you are each, you know, of yes. each personality. And that's what I love about the test is it's like here's your dominant one, here's your secondary one, and here's kind of where you at where you are with the other ones. And yeah, it's a it's a great test. So anyway. All right, tear me, tear me apart. Tell them all about me. <laughs> Sevens are wonderful. My son Aiden is a seven. He's uh, here in the room. And so if, if sixes um, uh, sort of cope with anxiety, with pessimism, it's like, what's going to go wrong? Oh, right? I'm, I'm the most, I said this last night in Houston, I am the most uh, like positive pessimist. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, that's interesting because like, Sevens are every bit as much anxious as a six, but they don't look like it. That's right. Yeah, I I hide it very well. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and that's because I I expect the worst. Yes. But I plan for the best. Okay, hold on a second. <laughs> I think it's the opposite. All right. So, oh yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. All right. Marriage therapy. Here we go. <laughs> hold on. What did you hear Josh saying? Could you just mirror that back to him? I heard him tell me I was fat and ugly and he doesn't love me anymore. That's not true. I still love you. Despite the fact. Is that what... 
Alright, so, now listen up. Sevens are called the enthusiasts, and their unconscious motivation is a need to avoid psychological and emotionally distressful feelings or circumstances, right? So if a six is at their worst paranoid, I like to say that sevens suffer from pronoia, which is the delusional belief that the universe is conspiring their next happy adventure. Right? So what does the seven do? The seven is uh, the, the most optimistic, sunny. Uh, they, can, they make great entrepreneurs, startup people, tons of beautiful energy, right? They really, they're sunny. It's like every day is a snow day for sevens. Right. You know? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right. And, but part of that is just fending off the anxiety and trying to get out of the present moment where there's the possibility of pain or suffering. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. And so, uh, for the seven, the journey really is to move from gluttony. And what I mean by gluttony, that's the fixation. It's like they're constantly trying to get as much fun into the present moment as they possibly yes. can. It's like they're just like fun, fun, yeah. fun. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Give me the fire hose of fun. Yes. 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 Yeah. In, in all manner of orifice. Oh, it's it, the it, most amazing thing. It's, I've, I've realized this, like living in LA, there's always something unique and amazing to do. Yes. And I'm always telling my wife, I'm like, we don't do enough. We don't do enough. We don't, we're in LA. We need to do more. And she's like, what are you talking about? We do so much. Yeah, right. <laughs> and she starts listing stuff. I'm like, oh yeah, I guess you're right. We do a lot, don't we? <laughs> but, but, th but that feeling of like not doing enough, not having enough fun, not, not experiencing enough of the unique things, like it, it gets to me. Yeah. It's something I have to look out God, for. I yeah. hate fun. I know. <laughs> Josh is allergic to fun. And what's worse is when he sees other people having fun, it drives him crazy. <laughs> I just don't get it. There's a quote, I think it was a Steinbeck quote in your book, um, uh, where uh, work, work is more fun than fun. Right. Yeah. You know what's fun for Josh? Work. Yeah, yeah work is more fun than fun. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I just don't, I don't understand the, the fire hose. And okay, the, so yeah. let me just say something here. This is the... the this marriage will not last, by the way. I'm just, I got 50 bucks on it, okay? We just had our 30-year anniversary. That's right. Yeah. But you're, never mind. Okay. The beauty of the Enneagram is, it's not, this is not so that you all can sit around going, oh, I'm like this, and I, you know, it's like, it's not like a party game thing, right? The, the goal is, is that if you know that to be true about him and vice versa, you know how to love each other better. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know what the unconscious motivation is here. You can love him toward the highest expression of himself so that he can move through the world with less friction and with more emotional and spiritual wisdom. Yeah, 100%. Right? It's like, yeah. So him and I both know what, we, what our values are. Mm -hmm. And like that's... That is why we're able to be such opposites but stick with each other is because, like, I go out of my way to respect his values and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, you know, that's just a, a, not a business partnership or a friendship, but even, like, the, a romantic partnership. It can yeah. just make a relationship so much stronger regardless of what the relationship Absolutely. is. Absolutely. Yeah. I've seen the, I mean, I can't tell you how many emails and people I've met at workshops and conferences who tell me, the Enneagram saved my marriage. Mm. I believe it. Yeah, saved my job. You know what's really helped me do? And by the way, we're going to get to eights and nines in a moment. We got that microphone here. Here's what happens. Someone breaks the seal, and then a large crowd of people try to, to line up behind the mic. 
we do run out of time. It looks like we have 29 minutes left. So, All right, so uh, I'll be fast. Now is the time to, to step up to the mic. Um, I will say real quick about the Enneagram. It helped me better understand my personality yeah. and also the personalities of the people that I interact with. Mm -hmm. And it's helped me with empathy and grace yes. toward other others because I'm no longer expecting other people to behave and think and understand the same way I do. Oh, man, that's huge. I, you know, I work with CEOs a lot and with executive teams at companies. It's very natural to a four. <laughs> yeah. No. The fours are so humble, too. Yeah. Yeah. The Enneagram does not account for personality disorders, but, you know, maybe I have one. But, but I oftentimes tell leaders that the, maybe one of the most egregious mistakes a leader can make is to presume that other people, is to presume that their way of seeing the world is normal. Because that means that every time you meet someone who sees the world differently than you, they're abnormal. You will judge them as abnormal and uh, perhaps treat them that way. Yes, and, and treat them as though they're wrong. Yes. Uh, and uh, begin to challenge them, which is a segue. Eights, the challengers. Mm. Large and in charge, my brother. These are, uh, these are people who um, are larger than life. My mother is an eight on the Enneagram. Okay? So I call her the other day. And, well, actually about, maybe actually it was not the other day, it was about a year ago when my mom's in an assisted living. She's 92 years old. For 75 of those years, my mother smoked a pack of Pall Malls every single day. She eats a bacon, egg, and cheese sandwich for breakfast every single day, right? So, I mean, Keith Richards wants to be my mother. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So I call her, I call her and I said, hey, mom, has, it, has COVID attacked you yet? And she goes, it wouldn't dare. <laughs> And then I, then I said to her, I said, well, what makes you think that you're, like, immune to COVID? She said, my white blood cells would kick its ass. <laughs> That's an eight. You know what I'm saying? They're, they're aggressive. They could be very confrontational. They, they have no trouble, like, in debates, right? But their, their unconscious motivation is a need to... Um, exert control over people in the environment in order to mask feelings of tenderness and weakness, right? Vulnerability, they're hiding vulnerability. So there's this kind of very defended kind of uh, spiky outside and it's aggressive and stuff. But when you go down to the middle of an eight, there is a lot of squishy stuff, a lot of love, a lot of tenderness, but it's just very hard to access for the eight or even for the eight to acknowledge sometimes. You know, so they have to move from their fixation, which is, um, what is their fixation? God, I just had a senior moment. A synapse just dissolved, and I saw it. I saw it go. Who cares? Um, eights have to begin to learn that their that vulnerability isn't weakness. That vulnerability is actually what requires true courage, and it is the currency of relationship. Let's move to nine. It's really fast. Ready? Let's do it. I'm married to a nine. I got daughters of nine. They're the sweethearts of the Enneagram. They're called the peacemakers. Their unconscious motivation is really a need to maintain connection with others, to maintain inner hakuna matata. <laughs> Lots of peace. They want everything to be cool, right? And, um, and they want to avoid conflict at all costs, right? And so nines, um, uh, unfortunately, when they're not very healthy, um, can kind of fade into the background. 
um, they don't want to assert themselves because they're afraid that if they express their opinions, preferences, desires, and all of those things, that it might create f breakage in relationship, rupture in relationship. And so that's why they want to avoid conflict, right? It's like that will cause disconnection for me with you. And so when they're healthy, though, we call them the peacemakers because no one makes a better mediator than a nine. Nobody can get two people to meet in the middle like a nine can, right? And they're lovely, lovely human beings. They, they really are. But they have to learn to individuate because oftentimes they will merge with the preferences, desires, opinions, and viewpoints of the group. So with my wife, I know we, we've done a lot of work with the Enneagram, right? If I used to, I used to text my wife, I'd say, what do, you, what do you want for dinner tonight? And I'd immediately get a response. I don't know. What do you want? What movie do you want to go to tonight? I don't care. What movie do you want to go to? Like the nine thinks everybody else's opinions are stronger than theirs, so why rock the boat? Why not just go with the flow? And so individuation is the journey for nines, becoming themselves, asserting themselves, believing their, their, their presence matters in the world. So that was a fast flyby. Mm. Welcome to the introduction right. of the podcast. <laughs> We have some questions here. Howdy, what's your name? All right. Hi, my name is Hexel Colorado. Uh, welcome to Texas. I'm Thanks, not from man. Colorado. I was born here. Uh, thank you for being here. I was What's really up, exciting man? to see you in person as opposed to in a, on YouTube on my phone. Well, thank you, brother. What's Thanks on your mind? Calling, I had a question that I was preparing to ask, but I didn't expect this special guest, and now I'm completely changing the question I was Let's do it. rallying up. He wants to talk am, to Jordan. The question is for Jordan. Yeah. Well, he's part of it, actually. So I am actually very wary of Enneagram and MBTI. I'm not skeptical of it. I actually do agree that people can fall into these nine categories. But what I'm wary of is how it is used. Because, for example, my fear is that when people get stuck on, well, get a certain viewpoint of how to use the Enneagram, instead of seeing the person and what the person needs and values in front of them, they are seeing the number. And then when they don't, the person in front of them doesn't behave the way that the number dictates that they should, then they're lost. For example, we saw a lot of examples here when you were very sure that Jordan would be afraid of stage because he's a five, but he didn't. and so. Instead of looking at the person and understanding the person as they are, we try to find which bucket and use the bucket to explain the person yeah. instead of the person happening to fall into this bucket. So my question is, do people behave the way they do because they are a five, or are they a five because of the way they behave? What a thoughtful question. And I think there's also something about how we can use these tests or types to batter people. Yeah, we can use them for evil. Yeah, we can. Yeah. So it's a, it is a great question. There's a quote in, in my first book about the Enneagram, The Road Back to You, where I, I quote a statistician whose name is George Box. It's my favorite quote in the book. He says, all models are wrong, but some are useful. Mm. The Enneagram is wrong. It's a model. It can't be perfect. It cannot... It, it can't... Um, give us, um, it can't un 
sort of unleash a, a picture of the inner terrain of other human beings in their fullness, their beauty, their mystery, their complexities, right? The Enneagram is a low-resolution picture of how people move through the world. In, in each type, there is an infinite number of, of expressions of that type. Jordan may be a case, right? Like, like, I don't put, the Enneagram doesn't put people in a box. It tells them about the box they're in and how to get out of it. Right? And so uh, I do think that people who are unschooled or unskillful with the Enneagram can cause more problems than they solve. Mm. So I agree. And so one of the things I'm always on a crusade about is telling people, hey, like, this is useful, but it ain't perfect. And, and people surprise us all the time. They do things that surprise us, you know? And so I'm always telling people, be wise. Be very wise when you use this, that you don't fall into the problems you're, you're describing. Yeah, it's, it's like anything else, like minimalism. It's a tool. If you take it too far, then you're, you're going to regret it. But like the other thing, too, is uh, I think sometimes people can take the Enneagram number and they use that as an excuse to do bad things. Like I could see my 25-year-old self like going out to the strip club, getting drunk, doing some cocaine, snorting some Oxycontin, getting up the next morning and being like, oh, I'm such a seven. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I wouldn't dare do that now, but I could totally see my 25-year-old be like, oh, that's just me. I'm a seven. Just love to have fun. So, yeah, these things can be used for good or evil. It's up to you. <laughs> Thank you so much. That absolutely answers my question. I'm going to do one follow-up, and then I'll walk away so you don't, I, I don't hoard the mic. But my one follow-up is then, that was a wonderful answer. Do you believe that someone's number is permanent, or does it change with their circumstance and decisions and beliefs? Well, yeah, well, so um, according to traditional teaching of the Enneagram, your type, the unconscious motivation, right, your style doesn't change over the course of your life. However, I will say, human beings evolve. I mean, I'm a very different four than I was at 25, thankfully, right? <laughs> And, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, people grow up in a lot of ways, but it doesn't mean that the unconscious motivation changes, right? Like, I still catch myself, and this is the beauty of the Enneagram, I have enough, I hope, self-awareness now that when my personality starts to take over in an unhealthy way, I can go, hmm, this will not end well. This will end in tears, <laughs> you know? So, yeah, next, next person, I guess. Hello. Howdy, what's your also, name? My name is Lauren. Hey, Lauren. Lauren. I traveled here from Mississippi. Actually. Oh, wow. This Thanks was welcome. The, Thanks so much for coming out. This That's was awesome. the closest city I could get to you guys. Thank you for the last few years of just awesomeness and the values that I've gained uh, being able to get rid of my corporate job. Uh, get away from toxic relationships, multiple. Whew. And my question is a little off subject, but I can maybe tie it back in. Oh, it can be, you can be whatever question you want. We don't have to tie it in anywhere. Um, at this point, I am uh, running my own business. I'm being my own creative soul. My biggest problem is time management. So I, I hope that a bunch of people here with me, you know, maybe can get some value out of this, but I struggle to manage being a single mom at this point, um, running my own business and, and doing things creatively that maybe aren't for uh, money or financial gain. 
um, just for my own creativity and also maybe this plays into a personality type that I'm just not aware of with an anagram at this point, but looking forward to your book, by the way. <laughs> Lauren, thank you so much for your question. Let me... Yeah. Um, do you talk. have any tools or I, I don't mean to use the word apps or tools sure I, I, no, I don't have any how to's for you but I've got some observations um, that and so whenever I say you know I'm talking about me here and so I'm, I'm observing my own life here I may refer to you but know that I'm just talking about me and my own understanding of my deficiencies so um, I talked earlier I read from the book like Yes, we had this problem of consumerism and debt, and it really became apparent in the last 10, 12 years. It's not the first time we've had that problem, but it really, really boiled up to the surface. But now there's these other problems. And, and I talked about one of those two problems is distraction right now, right? Now, distraction manifests in a bunch of different ways. In fact, we use this word all the time, busy. Oh, yeah, what are you up to? Oh, just real busy. What does that really mean when I say I'm busy? It means my life's out of control. It means everyone else is dictating my calendar. I have a lot of clutter. It's just calendar clutter now, right? I've got so many things going on. So when you talk about you have a time management problem, but what the problem really is, is it's an expectation problem. I'm saying yes to everyone else because they expect something from me. I get it. Why, why do we do that? Well, as a three, it's because I want to appear successful. And one way to do that is to say, I'm really busy, right? Mm. It's a sign. In, in our society, it's become a, a status symbol. But for me now, I've re repurposed it, and it's the worst word in the worst four-letter word in the English language. Just, I'm busy, I'm busy, I'm busy. All I'm saying is I don't have control of my own life. What I'm doing is I'm taking everyone else's emergency and making it an emergency for me. And so, well, how did I, how did I get away from that? There's a great book called Hell Yeah or No by Derek Sivers. It started off as a blog post years ago, and he turned it into a book that just came out within the last year. But basically, everything I say yes to now, it has to be a hell yeah. Hell yeah, I want to be here in Dallas tonight. But that means I had to say no to a hundred other things in order to say yes to this. And so in order to say no, we have to, instead of just saying no, 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 what am I saying yes to? If you understand that, it becomes so much easier to say no to those things that are less important to that than that hell yeah. Mm. Great. Thanks for your question, Lauren. Thank That's you. Great. <laughs> Howdy. Hey, hi guys, how you doing? Uh, my name's Alex, I'm from Dallas originally. Uh, July 20th of this year, I did my fourth uh, major declutter. So got rid of about like 60% of my stuff, lost about 21 pounds again, July of this year. And after Congrats. Here, awesome. Congrats, man. So That's I don't say that to brag way. because I, I know nothing of Anna, an, any, I can't even say it, anagrams? It's the angiogram. Any, that one, yes, yes. So apparently I'm, I'm a four, right? So my life is going great, but I'm used to being miserable and brooding and now I have nothing to brood over. So how do you compensate when you're actually, you know, self-improvement isn't a punishment. I think I learned, I've been following you guys for like 10 years and you know, when you do this kind of stuff, you're not hurting yourself. Yes, you have to go through transitions, right? But when you're so used to being miserable, how do you kind of grow out of that habit? Mm. Yeah, it's a great question because fours, when they're unhealthy, right, are addicted to their own suffering. Yeah. And usually it's about some 
something in the far off past, some experience of abandonment. Um, and that's what created this sense of being different and not belonging in the world, right? But when fours are doing great and sound healthy, they sound like you. They, they finally, they actually start to look like a healthy one. But they begin to really start to go at their life with intentionality. They, they start to correct things. They start to, to really start executing on what used to be a fantasy, right? They start, they start to do the things that they always imagined doing, but they, they, they were not, they're no longer just stuck in the imagination phase. It's like, let's do it. Yeah. Let's write that book. Let's write that screenplay. Let's start that thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're doing it, man. You just sound like a four that's getting really, really healthy. Made peace with my demons, guys. Love yeah. you guys. All right. Thank you, brother. Thanks, Alex. I will say real quick that um, fundamentally self-improvement is a farce. Um, so is self-help, by the way. Yes, yes, yeah. Because if you could help yourself, why would you be <laughs> yeah. reading that book? Right. You know what I mean? Like, right. And, and so here's... And, Coming from a three, I know this sounds really strange, but maybe there's, yeah, on my best days, this is my understanding. Uh, Self-improvement, think about that for a moment. Any of you have kids in here? Yeah, raise your hands, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so quite a few parents. So imagine when you had a, ba a baby in front of you. Did you try to improve the baby? So, the baby needs pierced ears. <laughs> <laughs> Head to toe Gucci. Um, and, and so I think quite often we get so caught up in the pursuit. I know I certainly did. Getting more, more, more because it's going to make me happy. It's going to make me successful. It's going to make me successful, which is going to make me happy. But of course, the objects of our desire quickly become the objects of our discontent. And so we think the problem is, oh, well, I got the wrong things, so and I got to go out and get more of the right things. That's how I'm going to improve my life. That's how I'm going to become happy. But happiness is already there. It's already inside you. And maybe by getting rid of some of that excess stuff that's making you so discontented, that's the real improvement. It's simply clearing it out of the way to uncover the happiness, mm. the peace, the tranquility that's already there. Howdy, what's your name? My name's Tammy, and I'm from the area. And I just wanted to ask, so when you're doing the test for the Enneagram, mm -hmm. if, you, if you're answering... It's a blood test, by the way. It's a blood test. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're, if you're answering it from a place of this self-awareness that's not there how do you know that your number's accurate it's a great question and in fact uh, we just recently uh, spent a big chunk of change with research psychologists putting together a constructing a very good test because here's the deal don't go online and just go grab an enneagram test because they're not well constructed they're like you know go get it like what take a quiz in vogue magazine you know what i mean it's like really you know oh look i'm a golden retriever you know that's like <laughs> seriously so, so not all of them are built the same. You actually raise a great point, right? Which is that um, the test doesn't know if you're drunk, <laughs> right? The test doesn't know if you actually have enough self-awareness to answer the questions correctly. Now, if it's a really well-constructed co test by a research team, psychologists, they're called psychometricians, then the test can eventually begin with a large enough sample pool, am I boring you to death yet, um, to figure out if actually you don't and still hone in on you, right? 
So part of the question, I would say that there are three ways to really learn the Enneagram. One is go to a workshop. Spend a whole day with somebody that's really teaching it. That'll help you find your type. Secondly, read my book. I hate to say it. It's awfully self-promotional. But the reason I say it is because most Enneagram books are that long and tend to be very, very um, technical. Mine is a primer. You know, it's really, really simple and kind of fun to read, right? And then you take a test, but only see it as one data point. It's not determinative. Just recognize the test may be good, may not be good. You know, it's just one piece of information. I'm going to keep looking in other places before I make up my mind. Thank you. Thanks for your question. Yeah. Great question. I see four more people in line. We'll try to get through all four of them. Ryan, maybe we... Uh, is it time? It is time. It is time for the lightning round where we answer people's text messages. So you guys have to text us your questions in line over there. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Since you're here, we'll listen to them live. But usually in the lightning round, you will text your messages to 937-202-4654. That's that same phone number that you needed from earlier to text that word, cowboys, plural, mm -hmm. in order to get a recording of this event tonight. So, Oh, and Jess asked us to make sure that when they text cowboys, it, it's just the word cow, no exclamation mark, no eggplant emoji with it, like just. <laughs> that could be the second text. <laughs> we have people, yeah, we always have people like text us emojis of things they've decluttered recently, and a lot of people get rid of eggplants for some reason. Now, Ian, during the lightning round, so Ryan and I do our best to, to share short, shareable, less than 140 character responses. We, we put the text to these minimal maxims in the show notes of our podcast so people can copy and share our pithy answers on social media. But really, we just maunder on a bit until we find something pithy and tweetable. And eventually, Podcast Sean cleans it up for us. It makes it look beautiful. Does a really good job in post. Howdy, what's your name? Hi, I'm Kim Williams. Hey, Kim. Hi. Hey, Kim. So as a psychotherapist for children and teens, what are your thoughts on the Enneagram for teens and why is it not considered best practice in doing screening and measures? Thank you. Um, so as you know, the human personality, is, at least according to most schools of psychology, the nuts and bolts of it is in place around age five. Um, I don't like to use the Enneagram with really small children because their personality is like wet cement. It's just not all there yet. You know what I'm saying? And the danger, and you know this, is that if a parent types a child, then the child will begin to pick up on the expectations of the parent and live into that type, even though it's not who they actually are. Yes, it puts them in a box. But yes. even as an adult, yes. you may go to therapy. Why is it not used in therapy? It is. I know sometimes, lots of therapists. Sometimes, but not yeah. always. Not always. I know lots of therapists who use it, um, tons of them, uh, with great, if it's used wisely, like we were talking about earlier. Um, I, I've known many teenagers, by the way, who actually do a better job of finding their type than adults do because they don't have layers and layers and years and years of self-told stories okay. and wounds, right, that have sort of, mm -hmm. you know, sort of obscured the lens through which they see the world. So I think with teenagers at the right point, it can be fantastic, right? Okay. I just think it's important for parents and therapists to not tell somebody what their type is. It's a journey of self-discovery. And you know what a teenager will do uh, if you tell them, oh, you're a five, they'll be like, you know, <laughs> two words. So through trauma, yes. get through the trauma first, Yes. process trauma, and then go to Enneagram? Yeah, if they're interested. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't ever, like, throw it on somebody. I'm like, you know, I wonder if the Enneagram would be something that you'd be interested in. Okay. And then if they run with it, fantastic. If they don't, that's okay. You know, you can get through life without knowing the Enneagram. Okay. You can do just great without it. You know, uh, but um, I just lost so many book sales on that. <laughs> 
It's unbelievable. Sorry. Apparently, I am not a three. I am not a three. Well, here, here's something pithy for you. I think what you're saying is traumatize your kids before you figure out their personality. <laughs> Thanks for your question, Kim. Or manage the trauma first and then do the Enneagram. Right, right. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate you. It's good. Thanks, Kim. Howdy. Hey, guys. I'm Arturo. Nice to meet you, brother. Nice what's what's you. on your mind? So I wanted to ask, now that you are not trying to buy things to be happier, what are your thoughts on happiness? Mm. Ooh. I got some pithy for you. Even I went, ooh. ooh. <laughs> I'll tell you my thoughts on happiness. <laughs> I'll start with something pithy and maybe we can unpack it. Your happiness is moderated by your expectations. And the reason we're so miserable, we're so upset all the time, is because everyone upsets us, right? It's all relational, almost always, right? So here's something else pithy for you. Every person that you interact with will make you miserable. Um, don't go tweeting that one. <laughs> it's just a fundamental truth, but there's a truth behind that truth. It's not them that's making us miserable, making me miserable, making you miserable. It's our expectations about those people. If I expect, the reason Ryan's and my relationship works so well and has for 30 years, although there's, there have been bumpy times, but it's always been bumpy because one of us had a crappy expectation of the other person. And of course, an expectation is a, is a type of clinging. It's hoping something's going to be different in some hypothetical non-existent future. And if I cling to that, hope, that expectation, I'm going to get dragged by it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You can clap for that. <laughs> oh, happiness is, it's, I, I was like a really young kid, and I just remember seeing in different TV programs or even like in cartoons, there was always this like, what's the answer to life? Like I remember like some Bugs Bunny cartoon and like the guy's climbing to the mountain and he gets to the OE, like what's the answer, answer to life? And he throws a pie in his face or something. But, <laughs> but I, I was like asking this question as a kid and I was like, oh, the point of life is to be happy. And if you look at our constitution, like it's, it's written in the constitution, the pursuit of happiness. And so that's, that is what life was to me, pursuing happiness. And I would argue that in the corporate world, Every once in a while, I would like, I'd get that raise or that promotion, and I would like have happiness. And like, as soon as I grabbed it, though, it would like slip out of my hand. And I just kept chasing, grabbing, slipping, grabbing, slipping, and I had this constant chase going on. And what I've realized is now for me, the point is not happiness, the point is uh, it's living a meaningful life. And what that means is that your actions are, well, for, for me, it means that my actions are in alignment with my values. That's when I can look in the mirror. And if I, even if I'm not having a good day, I could be like, well, dude, you tried your best today. You know, like you at least like did what you, you felt was right. So if I was to give you a pithy answer, I would say uh, happiness is ephemeral. Meaningful work lasts forever. Wow. I think the nice thing about that, too, is... Happiness is then a byproduct of living a meaningful life. And so it's not the chase. It's not the pursuit. Happiness can't be pursued. It can only be uncovered, as we talked about earlier. But you can uncover it by doing that which you find to be meaningful. Wow. Thank you, guys. Thanks, brother. Thank you. Howdy. Sorry, I had to sit down. Being 6'4 was kind of hard. <laughs> um, thanks for sharing with us. It's been really good. What's your uh, name, brother? Thanks for coming out. Jackson. Hey, Jackson. What's on uh, your mind? 
considering the philosophy of, of minimalism, I'm curious, you travel, you're on tour, all sorts of people, all sorts of generations. What would you say, would you mind sharing with us maybe some difficulties that particular generations have had with it, right? Boomers, millennials, Gen X, Gen Z, yada, yada. Uh, and then maybe some touch points or some, some on-roads that have been helpful with each. You know, it's fascinating. We started doing these tours back in 2011 was our first tour. I remember um, our fourth city was Knoxville, Tennessee, the birthplace of Ryan Nicodemus. Mm -hmm. There's a statue there. <laughs> it's not of Ryan. And uh, we show up to the event, and um, we're at the bookstore, and no one's there. And then we wait around to five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. I guess we're leaving. Yep. And then as we're walking out, two people start walking in, and they go, oh, my God, you're the minimalists. <laughs> well, yes, we are. Thank you. <laughs> and we ended up just being like a one-on-one a -on -one or two-on-two -two, uh, therapy session. And um, I think we got more out of it than they did. Yeah. Okay. And what was fascinating is I learned from those early crowds when we were just writing books and doing the blog, we, we would often have parents or sometimes grandparents who would drag their kids to a yoga studio or theater or wherever we were to give a talk. They would drag their kids out there and they would sort of begrudgingly listen. And all of a sudden, I'd, about five, 10, 15 minutes in, I started to see these light bulbs go on over the kids' heads. And I realized, like, oh, maybe this does resonate with more than just people who are over 35, right? And then when our Netflix film, the first one, came out, I noticed that 13-year-olds started dragging their parents to our events. Mm. And what was fascinating about that is they saw the discontent in their parents, the pursuit of happiness, the achievement, the living in the three nation, right, where it was... And even people who aren't threes compel, be, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but they feel compelled to behave like threes because it's modeled so well in the fabric of, of our society. And so there was a lot of discontent the kids saw. And they're like, hey, this might, this might be something you can do to simplify. And so the commonality I'm noticing is that it's applicable not to everyone. There are some people who are completely content with the status quo. And I think for those people, trying to hand them minimalism. Like we had someone, what, which city was that? It was just one of the last two. I think it was San Antonio, where this, this gal was like, hey, I came here by myself. Uh, it was originally, I bought tickets for myself, but then I brought my roommate who has no idea about this. But as soon as Ryan started talking, she's like, I own an entire wardrobe for my cat. I don't think this is for me. <laughs> That's fine if it's not for you. The good news is Ryan and I, we're not in the convincing business. We're not here to proselytize. I don't want to convert you to minimalism. I don't care how much stuff you own. Ryan and I have simply found a recipe that works well for us. And that exact recipe might not work for you, but a few ingredients you might be able to tweeze out and figure out what it means to live a, a simpler life for you. All right, so if I was to like wrap that up in a pithy answer, I would say minimalism isn't for anyone, but it is for those who challenge who want to challenge the status quo. I think that's solid. Yeah. <laughs> Bravo. Thanks, man. All right, we saved the best for last. That's right. Oh, What's your name, brother? Uh, Simon. Hey, Simon. Simon. What's on your mind? Um, not going to lie. I had no clue what this was about whenever I came here. Um, 
Up until three hours ago, this was a book on my wife's nightstand. Oh, wow. For me, at least. Um, she knows, and all my friends know, I have a lot of things. I have a lot of things because I have a lot of hobbies. I have a lot of hobbies because I have a lot of interests. Probably because I'm ADD. Um, do I Sounds like a do? seven. <laughs> well, well, well. Could the, be a five. The, I relate the with you. The dishwasher thing really pissed me off. So, um... That's, I was leaning towards the dishwasher. Uh, I guess that's a one. Um, do I start by reading the book? Like, I, I mean, I don't even know where to start because I like all these hobbies that I do, and I probably have 18 of them, minimum. He's definitely a seven. I don't mean to put you in a box, but... Um, no, I... I only bad said, dog. Yeah, I only said the seven because I totally relate with that. Oh, where, do you, where to start? Man, I think it doesn't matter where you start. It's, it's just... It's just starting. Um, when people ask me, like, hey, uh, with your guys' work, like, wh what's the first, you know, if you're looking for our work specifically, like, what do I start with? I would highly recommend the first documentary we did. Uh, it's on Netflix. It's called Minimalism, a documentary about the important things. It's, like, 107 minutes long or something. But uh, I feel like that's a very good, you know, 50,000 view of kind of the, the concepts that we're talking about. But ultimately, I mean, it sounds like, um, you really enjoy these interests that you have and you enjoy some of these hobbies um, or maybe you enjoy them all but there's there's something that's pulling at you right now that really is making you question all of the different hobbies that you're pursuing and that's okay like this is actually the, f the first step it's admitting that you've got too many hobbies <laughs> uh, so you've already started uh, but but you know ultimately like Josh said like we're not here to convince anyone um, we want you to to live the most meaningful life you can. And that's gonna include some hobbies for sure. I snowboard, there's a lot of stuff that comes with snowboarding. Um, I surf, there's like a wetsuit and a surfboard that I have, it's not too much though. Um, I longboard, I got a long, so like pretty much anything with boards, like I really, really like doing, except for waterboarding, that's awful. <laughs> I don't knock it till you try it. But but these but this is like these are the difficult questions, man. But the fact that you're even certain is is amazing, and I don't have anything pithy, Josh. Well, yeah. So <laughs> I've got a few things. So if you if you're interested in enneagrams, so anyone here, or if you're listening to this, the 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 place I would start is with Ian's most recent book, which is called The Road Back to You. He also has a great podcast called Typology, and you can start with, the, in fact, the interview we did with him on his podcast. And so you can check that out, and if you want to better understand yourself, it's not about... You know, we, we Unfortunately, we pathologize everything, and that's not what Ian does, and so I don't want anyone to mistake. Like, it's not some sort of death sentence. It is an understanding of what motivates me and sort of what's, it's kind of like the psychological clutter is the way that I, I see the Enneagram. It helps me understand, oh, what motivates this psychological clutter? In terms of minimalism, I think that it always starts with a question. How might your life be better with less? You see, we never stop to think about less. In our society is, how will my life be better if I make more money? How will my life be better if I have a more cars or a better car, right? A bigger house, better things, more things. Nothing wrong with the stuff. We all need some stuff. But when that becomes the point, we sort of lose sight of the real point. What do I actually value? How might my life be better with less? 
because I thought I valued certain things. There were societal things that I valued. I thought I valued status. I thought I valued success and achievement. I didn't stop to ask myself why I valued those things, but they actually got in the way of the things that I truly value, freedom. I value peace. Well, achievement and peace, they are antithetical to one another. So how might my life be better with less? More peace, more tranquility, more equanimity, more happiness, more contentment, a better version of myself, not better through improvement, but better through subtraction. Thanks for your question. Cool. Thanks, Thanks a lot. That's awesome. Oh, wow. What a night, Dallas. Heck yeah. Right, b before we end it, though, I really want to know about his book that's coming out. Let's talk about it. So you got yeah. a brand new book comes out in December. Was it December 28th? Yeah. Yep. Right. It's called The Story of, of Me. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. You, you did say it was the story. <laughs> yeah. No, that's my book on narcissism. Um, <laughs> It's uh, 1,079 pages. Yeah. <laughs> it's a long book about you. Yeah. Yeah. Can we just like acknowledge that David Foster Wallace was essentially just imposing his phallus onto the world? <laughs> <laughs> or, or what he wishes his phallus was, maybe? <laughs> I mean, whenever, was, whenever someone writes a thousand-page book, yeah. you have to kind of wonder, like, well, sure. what's going Something's on Something's going on, yeah. 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 <laughs> Tell us about your book. <laughs> I don't know what Back to, to say. Back to you, Ian. <laughs> Thank you for that setup with phallus. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, this is the galley. I just got it. This is not the actual book, but my publisher just sent me a soft cover version of it to um, read and figure out if there are mistakes in it. And um, so, yeah, it's called The Story of You. And the premise is, um, you know, all of us, I think, uh, we all inhabit stories, right? We, in, we think of our lives narratively. Right, and the problem is, is that as little people, uh, oftentimes we uh, adopt a story that helped us survive childhood, make sense of the world, of trauma, of all the things that we experience and see. And when we drag that story into adulthood, right, it begins to really. Oh, that was really. It really begin. <laughs> it really begins to work against us, right. And so the purpose of the book is using the enneagram as a way of saying, okay. So maybe there are sort of nine fundamental stories in the world, right? And a million, a trillion, gajillion different expressions or variations on those themes, right? right. And how do, we, how do we begin to expose the lies of those unconscious motivation? You do not have to be successful. You don't have to avoid pain and suffering, right? Uh, I don't have to be special and unique. These are stories we tell ourselves. And to really experience happiness, uh, we have to clear the clutter of these bad narratives that uh, follow us around that we don't even know we're living in. And when we can get, it's like uh, Mo Willems. I'll just, here's the pithy thing. Ready? Here's the pithy thing. Mo Willems quote, if you find yourself in the wrong story, leave. Oh. That's what the book is. Yeah. Ian, Ian, Ian. Ian, I want to acknowledge you, man. I want to acknowledge you for doing something meaningful. Yeah. I want to acknowledge you for helping people. I want, you, I want to acknowledge you for um, just helping us with a, with a deeper understanding of ourselves. We're really grateful for it. Ladies and gentlemen, Ian Cron. Yeah. <laughs> Woo!
I want to thank the Improv for having us here tonight and all their wonderful staff. Thank you so much for having us tonight. I want to thank Sean and Jordan and Jessica and Mallory and Emma and... Um, Danny. Danny and everyone else on our team for helping us create something meaningful. Thank you so much. Yeah. Ryan, I want to thank you for sharing this life with me. This is crazy, man. Dude. <laughs> and it's so much fun. <laughs> oh, most important, most important. I want to thank you for being here tonight. You know, I, yeah, you spent money to get in here, and I'm grateful for that because it covers some of our travel expense, expenses. Believe it or not, we actually lose money doing most of these tour stops uh, because we travel the team, we film it, and all these other things. And so we're really grateful for that, but more grateful because you chose to spend your most precious resource with us tonight. That's your attention. Sitting here and, and giving us your time, giving us your attention. You can't give that to anyone else and you can't get it back. So I'm really grateful you decided to spend tonight here with us. And if you leave here tonight with just one message, we hope it's this. Love people and use things. Because the opposite never works. Yeah. Thanks, y'all. Thank you so much. Thank you. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing that's just feeding your greed. Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it.